0: planning Lord willing next week to return to our study of the book of Acts. Uh, we'll be looking at chapter 15 next week, so you can be reading over that chapter if you like. <clears throat> this morning, however, I would like us to uh, turn back again to the Epistle of Third John that we just had read to us. i going to look primarily at verse 2. Now, I preached a message on this, a New Year's message, in fact, about 10 years ago. And since it was going to be our scheduled Scripture reading for this morning, I, I uh, looked it over and studied it again and reworked some parts of the message, and I thought it would be appropriate and profitable for us to consider this verse once again. Uh, Would you follow with me? I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health, just as your soul prospers. For I rejoiced greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, John is writing this letter, as we heard, to this individual, a reputable Christian man named Gaius. That was a very common name in the Roman world at that time. And he addresses him as the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. He was obviously a man well-loved. He was well-loved by God. He was well-loved by others in the church, by strangers that he had helped, fellow or other ministers. He was loved by the Apostle John. And he very likely or could have been an elder in this church. Now, John begins by offering this prayer or sanctified wish for his desired for his friend, uh, it's very different than the other epistles. There's no uh, salutation quite like this, or even opening prayer like this. <clears throat> the King James says, "Beloved, I I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health." Uh, the uh, English Standard Version says, "I pray that all may be well with you, <clears throat> excuse me, and that you be in good health." Uh, be in good health as he says it goes well with your soul. And so it's a prayer and a desire for prosperity, uh, physical prosperity. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Now, some translations say we wish or or desire that you be in good health and prosper. But it's not an empty wish. We wish everyone a happy new year. <clears throat> we usually say it quite Thoughtlessly, without much uh, real intent behind it, or uh, we we say it, that's just what we do at this time of year. We wish everyone a happy new year. But a godly man here can turn his wishes and desires into a prayer. He can petition his Father in heaven that we can uh, see others prosper and be in good health the uh, hymns we sing often here, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer, that calls me from a world of care and bids me at my Father's throne to make all my wants and wishes known. He's praying for another man, a, a man he loved very much. And he prays for his physical well-being. Now, he assumes that he's doing well spiritually. One of the things we often do when we pray uh, here in our prayer meetings on Sunday nights. We pray for someone who's having surgery or perhaps they just found out they have cancer or some something's going on in their life. But we always want to know, are they believers? Because as we pray for them, for their physical well-being, we want to pray for their spiritual well-being. And that's really the most important thing of all, is their spiritual condition. But... uh Uh, Some suggest here, some of the commentators suggest that Gaius must not have been doing so well physically. He was doing well spiritually. He was prospering. He he was thriving spiritually, but physically he had some real felt needs. Some suggest that uh, he wasn't doing well, but he's praying that he would be prosperous, thriving, flourishing, wealthy. Uh, The opposite of this would be destitute or impoverished, needy, he's poor. And so he's literally saying, I pray and wish that you would have a happy journey or road. That's what the original means, to to have a happy journey. I don't know if you remember this. Some of you old enough, you'll remember the Roy Rogers and Dale Evans show. We watched that every Saturday morning as kids. we put on our cowboy hats and our guns and sit in front of the TV and watch Roy Rogers. But at the end of the show, it was always Roy and Dale Evans, his wife. Uh, by the way, I always got teased for my name because I was named after Dale Evans, a girl. <laughs> well, I wasn't named after her. But um, uh, they're riding uh, towards the camera on their horses, and they're singing what? Happy trails to you. Happy trails to you. And that's really what John is saying here. Uh, he's praying that he would have a prosperous journey. A person may have a prosperous soul and yet be weak and ailing, have an ailing body or a very poor and destitute circumstance. Things might not be going so well outwardly, but inwardly they're doing very well. A person's outward circumstances and health is no indication of the condition of their soul. You remember how Job's friends saw Job suffering as he was and they concluded that he wasn't doing well spiritually, that he must have done something for God to bring that upon him. They were wrong. Job was a godly man. He feared the Lord always. And yet, he had a very destitute condition. Likewise, the opposite is equally and sadly true as well. A person may have a thriving and prosperous outward life and yet have an empty or a starved soul. You remember R.G. Lee? I've quoted him so many times and especially lately in his uh, famous sermon on payday someday of uh, Ahab when he took his vineyard and he opens the sermon by describing and contrasting Ahab, the king of Israel, with Elijah, God's prophet, God's preacher. And he begins by saying, Ahab wore fine clothes, and yet underneath these clothes he had a wicked heart. He ate good food, and yet he had a starved soul. He lived in palaces, and yet he tormented himself for one little bit of land more. And in contrast, there's old Elijah. He had, uh, he ate birds' food and widows' fare, and yet, He was a great physical and spiritual athlete. He he wore rough clothes, and yet underneath those clothes, he had a righteous and courageous heart. So a person can indeed have a very prosperous outward life and have an empty or starved soul. In Revelation chapter 3, one of the churches that John writes to or the Lord addresses through John, he says, you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Here was a self-satisfied church. They had it all. Much like the Corinthian church. They had so many gifts. It looked like things must be going well. But Jesus said to them, "You you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now that's a sorry condition. And yet, they were very rich in so many ways, But not spiritually speaking, they were very poor. Now, this is a prayer for prosperity. Now, it's not a promise of prosperity. And that's what some would teach in our day. Many teach, in fact, this what they call the prosperity gospel. These prosperity gospel preachers, they point even to this verse right here as a promise from God that you will prosper outwardly in proportion to your soul's prosperity. Now, John says, I I wish and I pray that you will prosper outwardly and be in good health, even as you are prospering spiritually, even as your soul prospers. But it's not a promise, and you need to remember that. They say that it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy, and that's not a promise in the Bible. In fact, there are too many instances in the Bible and in life in general Of godly Christians who love the Lord, who are serving Him, that are suffering outwardly. And even those who who say this and promise that God wants you to be healthy and God wants you to be wealthy, sooner or later, sooner or later, it's going to turn around. They can be as prosperous and they can be as healthy and fit, but you know what? We are born to die. We are born to die. In fact, they say as soon as we are born, we start to die. And sooner or later, something's going to overcome them. Something is going to take their life. And so you can't stay healthy forever, uh, for 70 years, maybe 80. Yes, the God says that'll be the case. But sooner or later, some kind of disease or something is going to overtake you. So. This idea that it's a promise is just not, doesn't fit into the scripture, and it doesn't fit into experience. Now, they say it's God's will for you to be healthy and wealthy. Is that what John is saying here? That you're going to have this guy, you're going to be this way. I prayed for you, it's going to happen. Well, if someone comes to you and they say, Happy New Year, and you at the end of the year, you've had a Particularly bad year, or poor, your, your maybe poor health or financial crisis, you lose your job. Well, you wouldn't go back to them and say, You said Happy New Year and I had a terrible year. I want my money back. <laughs> no, you don't do that. Well, that's the same thing with this. It's not a promise, but it is a desire and it's a good desire to desire this of others. When you see someone suffering, do you say, Well, that's just the way it is? Uh, at least you're prospering spiritually, nothing to worry about. No, we we have pity on them. And the Bible says we should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who re- weep. In fact, it should be our attitude and prayer towards all men, even our enemies, that they're doing well. Remember what uh, Micah says, do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. A righteous man may fall seven times and rise again, but the wicked fall by calamity. And so, it goes on to say, though, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. You shouldn't do this. No, uh, lest the Lord turn away his wrath if he sees you rejoicing over this. In fact, Jesus said, if your enemy is suffering, if he's in need, what are you to do? You're to help them. You're to give them a hand. You're to help relieve their need. That's something that's godly and good. Well, John wasn't promising Gaius prosperity and health but he is expressing his sincere desire and his prayer for him. Leland Ryken said this, he said, When we pray for ourselves and for others, we pray in confidence, but we do not presume to claim that God promises to send everything for which we pray. When a friend sends good wishes to us in the letter, we know very well that our actual circumstances may be far from what our friend had wished for us. It may not be that at all. But you don't fault the man for wishing this or praying for this. But notice, he says in proportion, he says, I pray, in verse 2, that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul is prospering. Now, this does give us warrant for our Sunday night prayer meetings for praying for people that are suffering physically or have a knee, or a job, or those things. Don't think we're just so unspiritual because we're praying for those things. We pray for their salvation if they need it, or we pray for their spiritual recovery if they need it. But we are allowed and should pray for their physical needs. Jesus said we're to pray even for our daily bread. That's a physical need. And there's nothing wrong or, quote, unspiritual about it at all. But here, when he speaks of... uh desiring that he would prosper in all things and be in good health he does speak of it in proportion to his spiritual prosperity he's speaking of Gaius's spiritual prosperity you're already spiritually speaking in good health you're prospering well now john makes several assumptions here about his the state of his soul and that's what i want to talk about uh, for the remainder of the message is the state of his soul. It was prospering spiritually. Now, the first and most basic thing is this. Man consists of both body and soul. That's the first assumption that John makes here. That man consists of both body and soul. He's praying for his body and his physical needs, but you're prospering already spiritually speaking. Your soul is prospering. Children, what's the catechism question? What did God give Adam and Eve beside bodies? What's the answer to that? He gave them souls that can never die. And then the second question, do you have a soul as well as a body? And the answer to that is yes, I have a soul that can never die. What is the soul of a man? It is that immaterial part of a person. You can't see it. You can't point to it. You can't measure it. Uh, a scientist will never discover it by scientific means. Uh, I even heard a long time ago, I looked it up and sure enough, there is this uh, this story of back in the early 20th century, at the turn of the century, uh, a scientist did some experiments where he, he was able to weigh someone as they were dying, and supposedly when they uh, when they're, they they breathe their last breath, that now the body weighs so many grams less than it did before he died, and so there they thought that proves the existence of a soul. But a soul is not physical. A soul isn't something that you can measure. It doesn't weigh anything. Uh, otherwise, it would be physical. Then, but it's not physical. It's spiritual, the soul or the spirit of a man. Now, just because the science can't discover it by scientific means, that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist any more than when the first Russian cosmonauts went into space. They concluded that there must not be a God because what did they do? They looked around and they didn't see him anywhere. So they said, there's no God. It proves our atheistic uh, proposition. There is no God. Well, our soul is as real as our body. Uh, Edward Griffin said this. He said, reason assents to this, that is, the soul's existence, when it is discovered, although reason could not have made the discovery. Well, how do we know then? And that's the next question of the children's catechism. Well, how do you know that you have a soul? You believe God created Adam and Eve with a soul? You believe you have a soul? Well, how do you know that you have a soul? And the answer is very simple. Because the Bible tells us so. (laughs) The Bible tells us so. That's how we know we have a soul. The Bible tells us so. And it tells us from beginning to end. It reveals this truth everywhere. The very beginning, when God created Adam and Eve, it says, "...the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being or person." I prefer even the King James, he became a living soul. The Apostle Paul spoke of being absent from the body, when you die, is to be present with the Lord. Because when a man dies, his soul does leave his body, and he goes to be with the Lord. Be absent from the body. What's absent? Your soul is absent from the body. Jesus also not only spoke of the superior nature of the soul... But of its inestimable worth, when he asked the simple question, simple but profound question, he said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? He has a soul. You have a soul. I have a soul. And it's something that can be lost. It's interesting that even in aviation, They still refer, I believe they still do, Uh, Eric could confirm this, they they refer to how many souls are on board. Uh, I googled this to see the origins of this terminology, and though I didn't find a clear answer, I found a number of forums that discussed it, and one person commented, as someone who volunteers in search and rescue, the Civil Air Patrol, as a mission pilot, when you hear the word souls... It adds some urgency and seriousness to the handling of any emergency. Isn't that interesting? They speak of souls because now all of a sudden this is very important. We're talking, now they're not looking at it in a biblical scriptural way, but they're acknowledging these are souls on board. A soul is a serious matter. We're not simply material beings. We're not just atoms and chemicals firing and just, it's all physical. We have a soul, the Bible teaches us, that can never die. It's not immortal in the sense it had no beginning. It has a beginning, but it continues throughout eternity. There's a commercial I hear on on television, the radio. Uh, it's, a, it's a commercial promoting the gospel. Uh, but it says, are you... Going to heaven when you die or not? (laughs) Well, that's a nice way to put it, I suppose. The real question, are you going to heaven or are you going to hell? Because the Bible teaches that we spend eternity in one place or the other. We know this because the Bible teaches it. Now this doesn't mean here when he speaks of, uh, when John speaks of the, the soul prospering, it doesn't mean that our body is of no importance. We don't hold the Platonic view that the body is simply the prison house of the soul. That's a totally pagan concept. And yet I've heard some Christians speak of that way. Their body. I'll be so glad to be free from this body and so forth. Well, we can suffer and and the the difficulties we face can make us want to be home with the Lord. Uh, But it doesn't mean the body isn't important. Uh, Cat Stevens has a, 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 a... songwriter and performer from the 70s, he had an interesting song entitled Miles from Nowhere. I don't know if you know that song, but a lot of his songs were very spiritual and seeking kind of songs, but he's talking about traveling through this life in search of some kind of meaning. And one of the lines says this, it says, Lord, my body has been a good friend, but I won't be needing it when I reach the end. That is, we kind of just cast it off. We don't need the body. It's gone. It's 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 not important. I appreciate that he emphasized the importance of the soul, or even that there is a soul. But uh, there's more to it than that. You see, God made man both body and soul. And when he saves a person, he saves both body and soul. And I think that's one of the issues that these health, wealth, and prosperity gospel teachers preach or that they make, the errors they make, is they say, well, see, John says, I want you to prosper and be in health. There it is. God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, or God wants you to be healed of all your diseases. Remember what Isaiah 53 says, that he heals all of our diseases. Well, he does. But that doesn't mean He does it all right now. He saves our soul, but even that, there's things to work on in the soul. It's not completely saved. We still have remaining sin and corruption. We still do this inward battle. The flesh lusting against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh and so forth. In heaven, though, even when we die, we go to be with the Lord and our spirits are then made perfect. Our body here on earth still struggles. Our body still has infirmities. Our body still has diseases and so forth. Those things are going to happen. But there's coming a day when all of that will be taken away. And God has promised to save not only our soul, but our body as well. First question of the Heidelberg Catechism is, What is your only comfort in life and death? The answer is this that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Body and soul. This body isn't something to just throw off into the garbage heap when we die. No, the body is something that He's promised to save completely. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 speaks of the redemption of our bodies. He says we we inwardly groan as we eagerly wait for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's coming a day. It's called the day of resurrection, by the way. The day of resurrection when the bodies of those who have died will be raised up and reunited with their souls. For Christians, that means that we will... Be united with our bodies, our new glorified bodies that have no corruption, that have no diseases, no illnesses. We will then be forever with the Lord, both body and soul. Right now, however, those who have died, their spirits have gone and have returned to the Lord who gave them. In the book of Hebrews, we read of this heavenly Mount Zion, where the spirits of just men made perfect surround the throne the picture of those who have died and have gone to be with the Lord. Like Paul said, he longed for and now he has in that place. But is Paul in heaven with his spirit or his spirit and body? No, he's in heaven with his spirit. In fact, he speaks of that as being unclothed. In, in, in 2 Corinthians, it's like we're, we're, not, we're not clothed. Uh, we're longing to be clothed, that is, with our body. Because when God made man, body and soul, he united those together and sin brought death into the world. What is death? Death is the separation of the body and the soul. It's, a, it's like a rending. That's why death is such an enemy. Uh, it's not something natural. Don't let the mortician or anyone else tell you that this is just a wonderful uh, cycle of life. We born and then we grow old and then we die. Isn't it all wonderful? Well, death is a horrible thing. It's, it's something we grieve over. Uh, it's not something we look forward to. It's something that we we shrink back from, in a sense. But it's that rending of the two. And so Paul says that's like being unclothed, and we long to be clothed. Now, in heaven you'll be happy and you'll be satisfied without your body But you'll be longing for that day. It's the day of resurrection when just like Jesus was raised up from the dead, we will be raised up. Our bodies will be raised up and reunited with our souls and we will serve the Lord. And in heaven, there will be all of those, not only spirits of just men made perfect, but the spirits and bodies of those who have been raised up with Christ. Jesus Christ is in heaven right now with His body that He had here on earth. It's a new body, a glorified body, a renewed body. But it's still a body, a physical body, just like He told Thomas, here's, here's my hand, take it and touch it. Touch me and see, a ghost doesn't have a body, He says. I do. And we will have bodies as well. Well, that's kind of a little bit of a tangent there, but it's, I'm trying to explain the importance of a soul and John here is assuming the existence of a soul. Do you ever think about your soul? Do you ever think I have a soul that can never die? Well, I believe we get so caught up in the world and the material things of this world, we tend to forget that we have a soul as well as a body. But the the second assumption that he makes here is the possibility of the soul's prosperity. Again. God made us both body and soul. And just as the body can prosper physically, we can be in good health, and we can even do things to try to make our lives and health better. Uh, But the soul can be made prosperous as well. It can grow. It can can be uh, strengthened and so forth. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said this. He said, Though our outward man is decaying. What do you think he means by the outward man? Of course, he means your body. The outward man. He says earlier in that chapter, he calls it like a tent. Uh, We live in a tent. Now, that's not the same as the Platonic prison house of the soul. No, it's it's something that God's given us here, but it's, it's like something that we are going to have to dismantle and go on. And he says our outward man is decaying. The inward man... Is being renewed day by day, and so our our soul can prosper. It can grow. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians chapter four when he's speaking about Christ's gifts to the church and why he's given them, and he says, "Speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into Him who is the head." So we can grow up spiritually, speaking. The soul, you see, is a very delicate plant in one sense. What do you have to do to cause it to languish? Don't do anything. <laughs> Just like a plant. If you don't do anything to it, it's going to begin to shrivel and it's going to die. Go on vacation, you might come back and find your plant is nothing like it looked like when you left. Because it's malnourished, it needs to be strengthened But it's a delicate plant, yet when it is strengthened, it can withstand some of the greatest trials and storms of life. And that's why one of the reasons we need a prosperous soul to help us as we enter into those trials and difficulties of life. If our faith is weak, oh, we'll be tossed about here and there by every wind of doctrine or every storm of life that comes by. It's like, oh, blow us over. But a spiritually strong soul can withstand those things. Psalm 1 tells us of being like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Its fruit shall not, its leaves shall not wither. uh, But whatever he does, he'll prosper. It's a physical, it's a spiritual prospering of the soul. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, lay aside all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and so forth as newborn babes, Desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. So you you have a soul, and that soul, just like your body, it can prosper. It can be in good health or it can be in poor health. Now, it's not something you can just look at and see because you can't see it at all. But you can see things that are going on that shows you it's not in good health at all. Uh, When someone is physically sick, you know they're uh, they're not doing well. They don't want to eat. Uh, Maybe they want to sleep all the time or maybe they can't sleep. But you see signs. uh, Things aren't well. And so there are also signs of the soul not doing well. But the assumption here is that the soul can prosper. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and following, Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. That Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. And you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend what is the love of Christ and so forth. But he says, I'm praying for this because I want you to grow spiritually speaking. The soul... Can prosper, and then I want to underscore too the the priority of the soul's prosperity uh, as I quoted the King james version uh, it really I don't believe translates this this passage very well. It says, Beloved, I wish above all things that you may prosper and be in health, even as your soul prospers. Now wait a minute, is he saying above everything? I, I want you to prosper physically. Well, that would go fly in the face of the rest of scripture, in fact. I, I like our translation here, or the New American Standard says, uh, I, I pray in all respects that you may prosper and be in being good health. Now that's a, that's a good, wholesome prayer. To say, I pray above everything that you prosper and be in being good health, that's not a healthy prayer. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very worldly-minded prayer. Jesus said, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Doesn't that underscore the priority of the soul? We're so concerned about health. We're so concerned about money. And yet we let our souls just languish. You see, people jogging on the way to church or out golfing. They're making sure they get their exercise. They're making sure they get their relaxation. They're making sure this is done and all the healthy uh, options you have now at restaurants and so forth. Just completely consumed with our bodies. In fact, so much so that it's almost like a worshiping of the body. That the body has become everything. We're turning into the Greek pagans. where That's everything. That's important. In fact, Paul even acknowledges this. He says uh, that bodily exercise profits some. He's not saying, oh, it's no good at all. Don't worry about it. No, it profits some. But godliness profits all things, both in this life and in the life to come. There's a priority here. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but can't kill the soul, rather fear him who's able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Now some take from that verse, oh, Jesus is saying that the body will perish completely. I mean, the soul will, will perish. Uh, it'll be gone. It's it just dissolved. It's gone. It's, it's not in existence anymore. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about perishing in hell. It goes to the place where the worm dieth not. And the flame is not quenched. Matthew Henry called the soul prosperity the greatest blessing this side of heaven. If you notice John's response here, um, he says in verse 3 I rejoice greatly when the brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. He's rejoicing in Gaius's soul prosperity. And he says in verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear my children walking in truth. This is what brought this pastor the greatest joy. Seeing Gaius and other Christians prospering in their soul. That's what he was rejoicing about. Oh, it would have been completely inappropriate. to say, I have no greater joy than to hear you're doing well financially and physically. That would be a very worldly view. That's not what he's saying at all. I'm rejoicing that your soul is prospering. Now, what's some proofs of the soul's prosperity? Well, we see some right here in Gaius' life. We see, first of all, this was an indication. Just like the body has indications it's not doing well physically, there's indications The soul is not doing well. There's indications how it's doing well or if it's doing well. Well, here's some proofs that John gives us here of the soul's prosperity. First of all, there was a love for the truth of God. Uh, He says in verse 3, I I rejoiced greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in truth. I had no greater joy than to hear my children walk in truth in truth. Oh, a healthy soul loves the truth. A healthy soul wants to learn the truth. A healthy soul wants to learn more of the truth. He knows he can't learn it all, but he wants to learn as much as he can. You see, it's the truth that sets us free. It's the truth that strengthens us. Jesus said to the Father when praying, Father, sanctify them. Speaking of His children, sanctify them. Make them more Holy, not their bodies more well, but make their souls more holy. Sanctify them through the truth. Thy Word is truth. It's the Word of God. That's where we find the truth. You'll not find it on the news. You will not find it in philosophy. You might find bits here and there of it. Yes, I'm not saying there's no truth anywhere, but it's the Scriptures. That's the pure Word of God. That's what's more precious than silver. That's more precious than gold. It's the Word of God. Paul told Timothy that the Scriptures are able to make you wise unto salvation. The Scriptures are are able to fit you and, and equip you for every good work. You need the truth. The reason a lot of Christians are languishing spiritually is because they don't know the Bible. They really don't study the Bible they might study a book that might refer to the Bible, might not. But we need to study the Bible. We need to learn the Scriptures. But it's more than just a head knowledge of the Scriptures. There are people that have a great head knowledge of the Bible, and yet they too are languishing spiritually. What they need is they need to put it into practice. James warns against about hearing, being mere hearers of the Word only. Now, well, that's not a healthy person, spiritually speaking. He said, they're like someone who goes and looks at himself in the mirror and turns around and forgets what he looked like. I mean, you going in the mirror and you're you getting ready and you got many things on your mind and you take off. It's happened to me a few times in my life, but I'll get down the road somewhere and I'll reach up and I'll go, Oh, no, <laughs> I forgot to shave. What was I thinking? What was I looking at? Didn't I see that? Well, that's the way a lot of people are with their head knowledge of Scripture. They, just, they hear the Word, they know the Word, but they're not trying to live the Word. And that's what John says about Gaius. He says, they came and testified of the truth that is in you just as you walk in the truth. Walking has the idea of practicing. You're putting it into practice. That is a sign of a healthy soul, of a prosperous soul. He didn't simply know the truth. He walked in it. And then as you read further on in this passage, it speaks of His practical love for the brethren. That's a good sign of a healthy soul when you're concerned about others, especially Christians. Paul says, Do good to all men, especially the household of faith. These are your brothers and your sisters in Christ. If you don't care about your family or your family members he says say, something's wrong with your family. And the same thing in the church. We are all part of the family of God. And we ought to be concerned with our brothers and our sisters in Christ. John speaks of Gaius as, my beloved Gaius. And so here in verse 6, he says, beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers. You see how Gaius was... Was concerned not only with his own things, but with the needs of others. That's what Paul says. Don't everyone look out for your own interests? That's not a healthy person. It's not a healthy child. You see, a child that's selfish—they're not in a good state. <laughs> they're not. You don't even want to be around them. Selfish and fighting and, and arguing and wanting their own way all the time, throwing a tantrum. And you say that's not a healthy child. Might be healthy physically, they might be able to throw things at you, but that's not a healthy child, not spiritually speaking. But he goes on to say, You have borne witness, uh, they, uh, these brethren and strangers, they, they borne witness of your love before the church. He speaks about what he did for them. Here were these, these itinerant ministers are coming through and they're preaching the gospel and you're opening up your home to them. You're you're helping them in their needs. You want to further the gospel. So you love them and you love the spread of the gospel. There's a practical love here. But then also in the fourth place, the fourth proof I would set out is humility. Gaius was a humble man. Unlike this man that we read of in verse 9 of Diotrephes. <laughs> Diotrephes loves to have the preeminence among them. Oh, that's a bad sign. Not a sign of a healthy soul, but Gaius wasn't like that. Diotrephes was. He wanted to be the big shot. He wanted to be everyone looking to him. He wanted to call the shots about everything in the church. In fact, he wasn't even allowing some uh, to have anything to do with uh, some people. He doesn't receive us, John says. Here's an apostle. Nope, John can't come. I don't like what John said. So he was a very arrogant man. But humility is always the sign of a healthy soul. Pride, arrogance, that's an unhealthy soul. George Whitfield said, I, I venture to affirm that if your soul prospers, you will grow downward. <laughs> downward. That's right. Humble yourselves, like John, the uh, John the Baptist. John the Baptist used of God. Great crowds were thronging to him, and yet he said, "I must. He that is Jesus must increase, and I must decrease." He wanted Christ to have the preeminence, not himself. That wasn't his role. His role was to point others to Jesus Christ. So humility. Jesus said. To his disciples, he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Whoever desires to become great, let him be your servant. Whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Even the Son of Man himself, speaking of himself, he says, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A humility that's willing and ready to do for others, not for yourself. Well, as we draw this to a conclusion, let me just ask you, do you think of your soul? Having a prosperous soul begins by coming to Christ. If you're not a Christian, that's where it begins. You can't have a healthy soul Unless you belong to Christ. Unless you have seen you as a sinner, seen yourself as a sinner before Him. This is what the Bible says regarding unbelievers and which every one of us was in this condition at one time. The Apostle Paul said we were dead in our trespasses and sin. Now, we can argue about degrees, but dead is dead. That means we really didn't have a heart for God. We didn't want to do the things of God. We'd rather go and follow the world and do the things of the world. Dead in our trespasses, walking according to the course of this world, He says. The same Spirit that's working in the sons of disobedience. That's what we were. Not a healthy condition at all. But Christ saved us. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, He quickened and made us alive. We're born again. In fact, those who are born again, Paul says, we are new creatures in Christ. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That is the moment a person believes he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. He's not perfect by any stretch. But he's in a different direction. He's in a a heavenly direction. Now, His greatest desire is to please God. His greatest desire is to honor Christ. That's the new creation. That's where a healthy soul begins. That's not where it ends, but that's where it begins with a new life in Christ. But as a believer, we need to be careful because as a believer, the Bible says that the world can squeeze us into its mold and become more like them than like Christ. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Jesus warned about the cares of this world choking out the Word so that it becomes unfruitful. Not a healthy plant. A plant that doesn't, a plant that's supposed to bear fruit that doesn't isn't a healthy plant. Remember, Jesus gave the example of a certain man who had a certain tree and it wasn't producing fruit. He said, so I'm going to give it one more shot and see. If it doesn't, I'm cutting it down. It's worthless. It's just taking up the room. I can plant something here that does grow, that does produce. Be careful. The cares of this world can choke the word out so that it becomes unfruitful. Make your soul's prosperity the chief priority of your life. Desire His word that you might grow thereby. Use the means that God's given you for growth. You know, if you want to start a garden uh, and you've never started one, you probably need to read some books. You, You probably need to ask somebody or you'll get very discouraged very quickly. I tried this. I tried that. It didn't work. I'm not getting anything. You talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about. The means of grace, that's what Christ has given you to help you to grow, to grow spiritually. That's what he says in Ephesians 4. He's giving certain teachers to the church. For the building up of the body of Christ. So that you will no longer be as children tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, but that you might grow up firmly, strong, healthy. Serve others in humility. Think more about others than yourself. And you'll grow spiritually. But if you think only about yourself, your comforts, your desires... You won't grow spiritually. You'll languish at best. May show that you're dead at worst. Use the means that God's given you. He's given you not only the church and the preaching of the word, He's given you fellow believers. We need each other to stay strong in the faith, to stay strong and healthy. The Christian who thinks he doesn't need the church, doesn't need anybody, is not a healthy Christian, first of all. And he'll never grow. He needs fellowship of believers. We're told not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the habit of some, but we are to continue meeting together, provoking one another to love and to good works. We need each other to help each other on the way to heaven. Are you bypassing that? If you're bypassing those kind of things, then you're not healthy as a believer. And you might not even be a believer. You need to look to Christ. You need to look to the means He has given. Go to His Word. Read His Word. Come to hear His Word preached. We're to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We're to use these things to strengthen the faith of one another. We're to add to our faith. We're to to seek to grow in the knowledge of Christ and so forth. We need to continue on. We need one another. If we're to have a spiritual uh prosperity of our soul this year, we need to grow. You know, so often, these times of year, what are we thinking about? I need to lose a few pounds. Oh, I need to clean up my garage. I need to do this. I need to do that. All of these worldly things. Those things aren't bad. They profit some. They do. But godliness profits for all things. Are you thinking in that way? I want to grow spiritually this year. I want to love Christ more. I want to love His people more. I want to love the lost more, then you need to grow more. Because that's what growing is about. We need to have resolutions, spiritual resolutions. I'm going to read the Scriptures more. I'm going to try to practically put it into practice. I want to follow Him more closely. I want to attend the means of grace. I want to do the things that He's called us to do so that we won't no longer be like children. You know, a 30-year-old child that still acts like a child is not a healthy person. We need to grow up in the faith. We need to be strong. And Paul writes to the Corinthians, I, I, I wish I could write to you as mature, but I'm having to write to you like your babes. That's not healthy. We need to grow up. We need to become more fervent Christians, more serious Christians, to love Him more and love His people more. May God help us all. Let's pray. Father in heaven,